Welcome to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. I hope everyone had a great and safe Thanksgiving. Today we're going to highlight some of the reporting from around the state, starting with reporting from WGCU following the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. With Thanksgiving behind us, we're thinking of everyone that was affected by the Category 4, nearly Category 5 hurricane that devastated the west coast of Florida a little over a month ago. That's right, Matthew. You know, in North Fort Myers, as many as 300 people spent the Thanksgiving holiday in a shelter. Many of them were just grateful to have a roof over their heads. Others just said they're pretty sad this holiday. WJCU's Mike Walcher spoke to some of the people living in the shelter about their experience and their expectations. It's a sunny, cool afternoon outside the mostly abandoned shopping plaza where the hurricane homeless live. People walk in the parking lot getting exercise. 19-year-old Mason Wilkins says he'll give thanks this holiday. Well, I'm just very grateful to have a roof over my head and a place to sleep. Wilkins says Ian flooded the room where he was staying in a Northward Myers trailer, destroying his belongings. Michelle Stummy is not so pleased about Thanksgiving in the shelter. Sad. I'm sad. I'm sad. I cried not just for me, but for everybody that's in there. Stummy says Ian destroyed her trailer, although she adds FEMA believes it could be repaired. 73-year-old Michael McNeil hopes to salvage his boat in the Caloosahatchee River at downtown Fort Myers. He rode out the hurricane on that boat. People asked me, were you, were you scared? I said I was terrified. Oh, I'm thankful to be alive. McNeil refuses to let a shelter holiday depress him. You know, home is where the heart is, you know, and uh, my heart, I help us in a good place. And if you want to find God, come down to one of these shelters. You know, the way the, the caretakers take care of people, the way the people take care of each other, it's really something to behold, you know. Shelter residents have caseworkers, and everyone's trying to find a home on the outside. 57-year-old Don Locke says patience and hope should be on this Turkey Day menu. I'm joyful that I feel that the Red Cross and the people that are working uh, to get my housing is going to take care of it. Locke says the storm wiped out a room where he was staying in the Naples area, so he joined other storm refugees in Lee County. Uh, the people that are here are the blessed ones. So if you're here, just mind your P's and Q's, get what's offered to you, and do what happens, you know. Michelle Stummy says she and her husband will make the best of this shelter holiday. You know, I think people will come together, though, and people will try to hold hands and maybe say a prayer and try to get through it. Mason Wilkins says he has a plan for Thanksgiving. I, I have people that I love, and, like, they're not here with me right now, but I can call and I can speak to them and just wish them a happy Thanksgiving, maybe FaceTime them. I'll spend Thanksgiving with my friends that I made. I'm Mike Walsher in North Fort Myers. After Hurricane Ian blew through southwest Florida on September 28th, schools in the region took a while to open back up. The hurricane devastated roads and building infrastructure while also knocking out power across the region. Schools began opening nearly three weeks afterwards as schools were deemed safer by then. WGCU's Kerry Barber was at Tice Elementary in Fort Myers the day its doors opened up again on October 17th. Tice Elementary is a tidy, putty-colored school located just south of the Caloosahatchee River. Its oldest part is a historical building in a Spanish colonial style that dates back to 1927. So it's pretty sturdy. But this Title I school did sustain some damage from Hurricane Ian, and its students' families certainly did. But today, the school opened its doors again, and the atmosphere was festive. Cheerful staffers greeted kids who were walking in or getting dropped off. Students smiled and giggled, happy to see their friends and their teachers. Even the sheriff's deputy standing outside busted a few salsa steps. Welcome to Tice! <laughs> Lorraine Bernardini is a clerk typist at the school. Today she was on the welcoming committee too. I am a greeter. Any questions that they have, if they forgot something, I'm here to give them answers. <laughs> And the school was clean and neat, the halls decorated with encouraging signs and posters. Coolers full of food stood open at the doors, and kids who wanted breakfast could grab it as they went in. The day was extra special for third grader Gustavo Lucio. Today's my birthday. He was looking forward to a couple of things. Getting good grades, being nice. And getting back to his favorite subjects. Mostly science and math. 
But in the aftermath of the Category 4 storm that left thousands in the area homeless, many of the students have concerns beyond their schoolwork. Um, I'm feeling kind of sad because I lost my house. That's fifth grader Floor Palma. She says she and her family have had to relocate temporarily because their home was flooded out. It was a relief to come back to school, she said. In class, she was at a table with some classmates typing on a Chromebook. They were working on things to say to the community after all the loss wrought by the hurricane. Encouraging words and positive words. Like, you can keep trying and God's with everybody. Floor's teacher, Christina Stewart, had been worried about her students after the storm. I was worried about them. I mean, I didn't have power and internet and service for so long that those are the main ways that we reach out to parents is email and phone calls and things like that. So, um, so that was hard, but it's been so good to see all of them today and be able to check in with them. She put on a donut party for them so they could chat and get caught up. Stewart continues. Something like this always gives you a, a sense of appreciation for normalcy. I think sometimes we work so hard to try to, you know, stand out or, or live a life that's extra special. And, and something like this just shows you the beauty of being able to wake up and go to work and get up and send an email to your colleagues with a funny meme. Just those normal things that you miss when you're in the middle of a, a tragedy. For today, the students of Tice Elementary celebrated that normalcy. They are happy to be back to their classroom activities. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Carrie Barber in Fort Myers. Ian brought massive amounts of rain and flooding to the region, with some areas seeing more than 20 inches of rain and more than seven feet of water above dry land. The historic storm surge flooded many homes residents have been living in all of their lives. Now, recovery post-Ian brought many heartbreaking stories about just how difficult the rebuilding process will be for so many people. WGCU's Sandra Viktorova spoke to one couple near Fort Myers who mistakenly thought that their insurance policy would help them start over. I don't want to do nothing like this ever. It's insane. 75-year-old Roy Hansen hopes Ian is the last close encounter he has with a hurricane. He wasn't sure he and his wife of 52 years would survive the rising waters in and around their home in South Lee County. I looked at her and she looked at me. I said, is this the way we're supposed to go out? Treading water? Climbing into the attic saved their lives. We just told ourselves, well, we're going to make it. Although much of their belongings were destroyed by water, they thought it was all going to be okay because they had insurance. I thought I was actually covered for everything. I thought I was, you know, I didn't worry about a thing. I said, well, if it ruins everything, I guess maybe we'll get everything back. But we don't. That's because Hansen only has property insurance, not flood coverage. Just 18% of Floridians have flood insurance, according to an analysis by the Insurance Information Institute. That water was coming down through here about like at least 15 miles an hour. Some homes in Hansen's part of town saw 8 to 10 feet of storm surge. That, according to meteorologist Megan Browski with the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network, she says more Floridians need to think hard about buying flood coverage because of the state's low elevations, frequent rainfall, and susceptibility to hurricanes. The answer is, may be a little bit bold, but I think it, it's a good call. Anybody who owns property in, in Florida should consider flood insurance especially folks living along directly along the coastline. Chris Curry is president of the Florida Association of Public Insurance Adjusters. He expects FEMA to make changes to flood zone maps that will help owners in the future. FEMA will probably adapt their modeling and require a lot more flood insurance in some of the areas that were hit here and maybe beyond. And mortgage companies will then adapt to that, I'm sure. And they, might, and they may go beyond that. Curry says Hurricane Ian has also exposed the urgent need to educate homeowners that flood insurance isn't part of your typical homeowner's policy. But for Hansen, it's a lesson learned the hard way. Now I'm stuck with nothing. Zero. Big super zero. In Lee County, Sandra Victorova. 
After a devastating storm like Ian, it's impossible to understate the impact on the environment and the ecosystem. Ian's near Category 5 winds felled and ripped trees out of the ground and threw massive amounts of debris on the ground and in bodies of water. Boats were toppled over and sunk, spilling oil into the water and leaving slicks along the surface. WGCU's Mike Canary talked about the ecological implications of Ian's impact with Dr. Wynne Everham, who's a professor in the Department of Ecology and Environmental Studies at Florida Gulf Coast University. So much stuff got washed out into our water bodies, our bays. Um, what are the implications for the water bodies uh, going forward? We had a couple of folks from the water school, Serge Thomas and Don Duke, were out on the water doing some sampling. I believe it was Imperial River. It might have been Estero River. And they were getting not surprisingly, but still real low dissolved oxygen levels right now. So DO powers the animals that live, the fish and the other organisms that live in the water. And typically, if you get below four parts per million, you're, you're stressing those animals. And they were getting things below two. My experience from other hurricanes in freshwater systems is that native fishes and organisms seem to be adapted to that. So they probably, after the hurricane, hunker down a bit until the systems flush out and the sunlight reinvigorates the dissolved oxygen. So when you put a lot of organic material into a water body, like when you have an algal bloom and an algal die-off, the bacteria chew all of that stuff up and pull the oxygen out so you get these fish kills. We could be seeing that in near coastal systems. You could be seeing algal blooms because of that fertilization event. That's just the organic material. I remember after Andrew, somebody phrasing it this way, think about all of that stuff that's in your garage, fertilizers, pesticides, paint, solvents, gasoline, and imagine dumping it all, everybody in your neighborhood all at once into your backyards. You know, that's what happened with the storm surge. So a longer legacy might be some of these more complicated uh, chemicals that we've now flushed into our near coastal systems. Some of them will break down. Some of them are going to reside for a while. Is it possible to say how the kinds of impacts that we received, particularly from water, connect in some way to the ways that we've developed here in southwest Florida and, you know, maybe in contrast to other parts of the state who have done a less good job of, yeah. of keeping mangroves yeah. and things like that? Yeah. So we all know now, you know, from the coverage that a hurricane is really three events. It's um, a storm surge, it's a wind event, and it's a rainfall event. So I feel like on our side of the storm in the eastern and southern Lee County, we were thankfully gifted not a lot of rain. I haven't seen the totals, but I've been saying I'll be surprised if it was six inches, you know, which is a lot of rain. It's just that it could have – in Orlando, it was double that. So I don't think that we got the flush of fresh water. Uh, the Imperial went up a bit, you know, but that what, what could have happened, that sort of – Freshwater surge meeting the storm surge and in, in the middle flooding. If we had, I'd like to think that we're getting better prepared for it as we're putting more development on the landscape. We're raising some of the standards for stormwater retention. That's what we should be doing. I don't think it's enough. You know, we should be holding a lot more water back than we did. We went through that period of development where we thought, let's build more canals and let's get the stuff off the land. And you do that, and that's what's flooding people downstream. You know, if, if you've got a lot of water in the eastern part of the county and your solution is to channel it west, then somebody's going to have a wet first floor from that. Uh, as we flew down south, I was struck by, and it's, it's really hard, 500 feet in a helicopter to try to read, you know, which buildings were flooded six feet. But there are portions of southern Lee County and then as you go into Collier County where development occurred away from the coast with a line of mangroves between it and places where they didn't, you know, where the homes are right up behind the, the beach barrier. And I'm tempted to say you could see the difference, but I think I really need to look at better data than, you know, flying in a helicopter. It makes sense to me as an ecologist to say, if you protect mangroves, they'll protect you. And I'm hoping that as we figure out how we'll come back from this, part of it could be putting mangroves back in places where, we, where they weren't. And maybe even recognizing that with sea level rise, we need to have more mangroves higher up in elevation. It's horrible. It's horrible the people who have lost their homes, that have lost their dreams. Maybe this opens a door for us to be thinking about better. This will not be the last storm that we see like this. And again, I don't, I don't mean to scare people. You know, the governor referred to it as one in 500 years. I'm not sure we can say that with 
the increased frequency of more intense storms that we're seeing with climate change. So it really demands of us that we think very carefully about how we build back. That was Dr. Wynne Everham, professor in the Department of Ecology and Environmental Studies at Florida Gulf Coast University, talking with WGCU's Mike Kenairi in Fort Myers. Now, Kenairi also spoke with Robert N. Maycomber, an award-winning author of maritime novels who travels widely giving lectures on maritime and literary topics around the world. He grew up on the waters of southwest Florida and all his life has lived on the coast's barrier islands. He and his wife's home on Pine Island was completely destroyed by Hurricane Ian. And he shared about what he has experienced since the storm and the perspective he's gained. I have run into people that have been the very best of humanity. I think it's worth it to say that on the worst day of our coast's history, that all along our experience from that day of the hurricane, we've run into people that exhibit the very best in humanity. For instance, on Pine Island, I want to say a big big thank you to the Haunches, the Pennas, the Williamsons, who followed the island tradition and cleared the roads. It's an island tradition that we clear our own roads. They got it done within one day after the hurricane. That's incredibly impressive. Food uh, was distributed on the island even before uh, we had the, uh, the road rebuilt. And many neighbors pitched in to help us. And then on the day that we went to leave, because we knew we'd have to get to Tampa to try to reconnect and find computers and clothes and buy shoes and things like that. We ended up getting in a boat with people we didn't know. He was a Cuban refugee who took his own boat. He'd been here three years. He lived in Cape Coral, and he went out to Pine Island to help people because he wanted to help his new country. And he had also some Mexican people on the boat, too, And they helped us carry things because it was only what we could carry. And they were great people. And it was former refugees helping new refugees. You know, you're a writer. You're an introspective person. Have you learned anything about human nature through this that you didn't know already? Because this is one of those, you know, it's a a landmark in anyone's life. You know, it's interesting. I've run into refugees in uh, the Middle East, in Africa, in South America, Central America, Southeast Asia. Most of them were war refugees. Some of them were natural disaster refugees. And your heart goes out to them as you travel along, as you're walking with them or near them. And now I'm a refugee. And I'm an American. And Americans aren't used to being refugees. But it's it's one of those things where it, it sort of teaches you it's the great equalizer. And um, I tried never to look down on other refugees but to be sympathetic. But it's a whole other ballgame when you've been through it. And what we've been through is nothing compared to what a war refugee, like in Ukraine. So it gives you kind of an understanding a little more of the thousand-yard stare that refugees have. That was WGCU's Mike Canary talking with author Robert N. Maycomer, whose Pine Island home was destroyed by Hurricane Ian. You can hear their full conversation at wjcu.org slash gcl. Coming up next, a look at Florida's immigration system and the sheer amount of debris left by Hurricane Ian in Lee County. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio.
Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. The latest podcast from WLRN News called Detention by Design traces the origin story of the modern immigration detention system in the United States. In the third episode, reporter Daniel Rivero tracks how an uptick of Haitians coming to Florida by boat in the 1970s started to crystallize a new way immigrants would be treated on arrival. More and more Haitian boats started showing up in Florida. In August of 1976, a boat full of 132 Haitians landed. And this news clip from WFOR paints a scene of how the U.S. government was thinking about this. In the past several years, 1,500 Haitians have come here like this. They all say that they faced political or economic oppression at home. Immigration official G.R. Adams says, as with the others, the current group probably will not be given asylum. At the present time, the people that we've talked to and interviewed have claimed that this is an economic situation. No one has made any plea for political asylum as yet. Uh, when that'll happen, I, I can't say. It's, it's a good chance that that's what will happen. On that basis of economics, uh, is there any chance that they could stay in this country? It hasn't in the past, no. At this point in time, in the mid to late 70s, this is the stance of the federal government, that Haitians were fleeing poverty and not a U.S.-friendly political dictatorship that had just been passed down from father to son, from Papa Doc to Baby Doc. And so this claim by the federal immigration officials that no Haitians had pleaded for political asylum, this was not true. Haitians were pleading for political asylum. And as the boats kept arriving, the U.S. kept detaining Haitians in local jails and kept denying that they were pleading for political asylum. And there wasn't enough money coming in from fundraising efforts to just keep bonding everyone out. So Haitians stayed in jail for months and months on end while they waited for legal help. This practice was started under Republican President Richard Nixon, continued under fellow Republican Gerald Ford, and it was also continued under Democratic President Jimmy Carter, who was elected in 1976. Attorney Ira Kurzban worked on some of these cases in the late 70s. One of my most vivid memories was the detention of a 14-year-old girl in the West Palm Beach jail alone uh, without her family. Um, and uh, so it was kind of emblematic of the policy, which was how do we discourage Haitians from coming? Here's how a young Ira Kurzban explained why most Haitians were being denied asylum at the time. The policy in regard to Haitian refugees is determined almost solely by the State Department and the White House. That policy is that we have ongoing diplomatic relations with Haiti, that those are diplomatic relations that we don't want to disturb, and that an admission that we're admitting people to this country's political refugees, in effect, is an admission that the political conditions in Haiti are not as good as they should be. A study published by Duke University found that in 1975 and 1976, the U.S. granted asylum to 95% of people who fled from communist countries. But when it came to people fleeing right-wing dictatorships like Haiti, only 5% of refugees were granted asylum. Back in Haiti, Marlene Bastien, who we met in part one, had just finished her schooling. And she wanted more than anything to be a doctor, a dream that was not panning out. Because I grew up under a dictatorship, you know, I could not, you know, study. Because uh, in order to be accepted uh, in the medical school, you have to have like a parent. Someone connected with the Duvalier regime. A parent is like a godfather. Uh, I was very, I became very frustrated after I was denied uh, entrance. Um, and then I started, you know, uh, organizing in Haiti, which at that time uh, could be a death sentence. Bastien started working underground and organizing pro-democracy actions across the country. But by the late 1970s, her father had already moved to Florida after receiving threats from the Tonton Makuts, that militia that murdered and tortured people. Bastien's father managed to get a visa and moved to Belglade, a small city in Florida's sugarcane region right on the shores of Lake Okeechobee. Because he was like perceived as a leader, he was hired immediately as a, uh, by the Health and Rehabilitative Services. So his role was to facilitate the adjustment process and also to support the refugees because 
a lot of them, you know, left Haiti for the first time from their village, from the villages, and uh, they needed help to help them uh, adjust. He was helping with applications, interpretation, and all. So when he when he heard that I gave an interview at the famous Radio Haitian Terre, he became very concerned. Both him and my mom, they became very concerned. And then they advised me to leave and then, you know, and seek political asylum here. The growing number of Haitians lucky enough to be released after being detained for months on end is starting to put stress on local governments in the late 1970s. In Miami, the deputy manager of the Dade County government, Dewey Knight, puts out a call for help, for additional funding for the local government. The most important thing, at least as we see it, is there needs to be immediate uh, financial assistance to the local community so that we can get about the business of meeting the basic needs of a substantial number of people in this community. And the boats just kept coming. The following news clips are from 1979, and the first of them is from a story of 30 Haitians landing on Hollywood Beach. And the guy speaking looks like a total surfer dude with no shirt and long blonde hair. Well, last night we were sitting out in front of the place here and having a couple drinks, me and my girlfriend, and we saw this strange boat coming up. Went down to the beach to look at it, and we saw like a few people on the boat. And the boat came all the way up to the beach, and all of a sudden all these black people are like running all over the place saying, is this Miami, is this Miami? Police were just like pulling them back like five at a time. That's exactly what happened. Did any of them talk to you? One of them did. One of them came up and said, hey, brother, what's up, man? Is this Miami? I go, yeah, and it's the biggest smile on his face. I mean, I've never seen anybody so happy before. Around 6 o'clock this morning, 53 Haitian aliens sailed into the port of Miami on board this 35-foot makeshift sailboat. When sighted by, by 1980, this steady tick-tick of Haitian boats seen on the nightly news was starting to stir up resentments in South Florida. And local governments started voicing frustration, calling for help from the federal government. But the arrival of migrants by sea was still mostly being looked at as a regional thing. It didn't impact most Americans. Little did anyone know, what was happening in Florida would soon become a major issue for the whole country. And it would force a wholesale reevaluation of the role of immigration detention. That was an excerpt from the third episode of the new podcast from WLRN News, Detention by Design. It was made possible with funding by the Shepherd Broad Foundation. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. While hurricanes bring powerful enough winds to uproot trees and toss homes and furniture around, all of the debris blocks roads and makes it so much harder for recovery efforts to get going. As of last week, Lee County, Florida has collected more than 3 million cubic yards of debris since Hurricane Ian made landfall six weeks ago. It is an astounding amount of debris compared to previous huge storms like Irma and Charlie. Pam James has that story. Every storm is different. Barry Lund is the project manager of the Crowder Gulf Debris Management Site located at Coconut Road and US 41 Highway. If you drive by that corner, you've probably noticed that the piles of debris continue to grow. There's a reason for that. This storm is a heavy storm surge. So you got much more construction debris than in Irma. Irma was probably 80% vegetative debris and 20% CND. This is going to be more like 50-50. So it's just a much higher concentration of construction debris because of all the flooding. There's no comparison. Um, Irma was about 1.8 million cubic yards, and that was done, I think, over about five months. We surpassed that in about 40 days. Doug Whitehead is the director of Solid Waste in Lee County. And it's still coming out. We think there's probably 10 million cubic yards total. And that's why you continue to see the trucks rolling every day. They're estimating 10 million cubic yards total of storm debris just for Lee County. That equates to around 23 football fields with debris stacked 200 feet high or as tall as an airport control tower just for Lee County. The debris is collected by the now omnipresent black hauling trucks. The trucks with the additional trailer are called double barrels. Each trailer can hold up to 125 to 150 cubic yards, but the average is around 80 cubic yards due to the bulkiness of the debris. 
That means thousands of trucks collecting thousands of loads across southwest Florida. You know, to say what's sitting on the ground, I can tell you that we've had about 400,000 cubic yards that have come through my site. In, in the past 23 days. The debris management site at 41 and Coconut Road is just one of the many in the county set up after the monster storm. Each site separates storm debris into five piles. Vegetative debris, construction and demolition, or C&D, appliances and white goods, electronics, or e-waste, and household hazardous waste. That's also how the county recommends separating storm debris for pickup at your home or business. It needs to be placed on or near the curb separate from your household garbage and don't put it in black plastic bags. The debris contract at Crowder Golf assumes that anything they can't physically see is like wet garbage, like food waste and things, which they are not allowed to pick up. So black plastic bags are right out. Yard waste can be placed in those large craft paper bags. They can be placed in clear plastic bags or they can be loose. Ultimately, the debris will be taken to a local landfill, ground up for mulch, or recycled based on the materials. With a potential of 10 million cubic yards in Lee County alone, it's likely southwest Florida will see storm debris on curbs until late February. Whitehead assures people that it will get picked up. For much of the county, we've already been through and done the first pass. And I just want to assure people that the county and their contractor, Crowder Gulf, will be doing multiple passes through the neighborhoods. If you miss the first pass, don't panic and think that no one's coming back because... The contractor is absolutely coming back for that. Barry Lund with Crowder Gulf echoes the need for patience because he's personally driving Bonita Springs and Estero with a map to determine debris collection priorities. And, and some of these roads down here, Gary, Regal, I've cleared this road eight or ten times before the debris stopped coming out. It's not a go in there one time and you're done and come back in two weeks. And I do realize that some of these areas up here really wanted their debris off of the ground and they had some trees and some palm trees down. I mean, and we appreciate the patience of the people so much to understand. We're gonna to get to you, it may take me a week or two, because these people down here are totally decimated. If you need assistance to move debris from your home or business to curbside, Whitehead recommends calling the 211 number for United Way. United Way can absolutely link people who can't move material or don't have neighbors to help them with material, help them get it to the street. I'm Pam James reporting from Fort Myers. A Marvel movie sequel made its debut in theaters two weeks ago. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is on the big screen, but without the star of the first Black Panther, Chadwick Boseman. Fans were shocked when the actor died from colon cancer in his early 40s back in 2020. In Duval County, colon cancer rates are on the rise, particularly among black men. Jacksonville Today's Will Brown spoke with one local doctor about what he's doing to try and reverse that trend. Duval County has the highest colon cancer rate of any of the state's major metropolitan areas, according to the most recent data. UF Health Jacksonville gastroenterologist Peter Golly says the reasons are twofold. Colon cancer is more prevalent in African Americans, and Jacksonville has a large percentage of black residents at about 30%. Probably the most important is the African American community is more heavily hit with this, you know, decreasing age. So in particular, um, the African American community really has to be a bit more aggressive getting screened uh, between 45 and 50. Next year, Gali will release a study looking at the impact of targeted colon cancer screening for black Jacksons and low-income residents. It was funded by the NFL and the American Cancer Society. When he died, Chadwick Boseman was still 15 months away from his 45th birthday, the age when doctors suggest getting screened for colon cancer. I think what the biggest impact of Chadwick Boseman's death, for my, you know, from my perspective, is that the conversation gets had. You know, like people are are, are talking about it. Um, they're, they're bringing it up, and that's remarkable. Rectal bleeding, persistent abdominal discomfort, and a constant change in bowel habits are all potential symptoms of colon cancer. I'm Will Brown in Jacksonville. Colon cancer is a disease in which cells in the colon or rectum grow out of control. Sometimes abnormal growths, called polyps, form in the colon or rectum. Over time, some polyps may turn into cancer. Regular screening beginning at age 45 is the key to preventing colon cancer and finding it early. However, if you have an inflammatory bowel disease such as Crohn's disease, a personal or family history of colon cancer or polyps or a genetic syndrome, you may need to get screened earlier. Well, the Pinellas County School Board has approved new raises for the district's public school teachers after months of negotiations with the local teachers union. 
But while the deal offers a higher raise than in recent years, WMNF's McKenna Scoiler reports that amid high inflation and housing costs, some worry it might still fall short. The board approved a new deal with the Pinellas Classroom Teachers Association. That's a labor union representing over 7,000 teachers, counselors, and other instructional staff in public schools. The new agreement delivers a 4.25% average pay raise. It also includes advanced degree supplements, paid planning time, and lunch breaks for clinical staff. Eileen Long, chair of the Pinellas County School Board, praised the deal at today's board meeting. This is a great day for Pinellas County teachers. Union members last week overwhelmingly voted to approve the deal, which raises the starting teacher salary to over $50,000 a year, exceeding the state average. Still, the deal falls short of what the union had originally fought for. I, of course, believe that the teachers do deserve more. Nancy Velarde is president of the Pinellas County Teachers Union. Back in August, the union called for an 11 percent raise to keep up with the rate of inflation and a higher cost of living that's making it harder for teachers to make ends meet. Philip Belcastro teaches English at St. Petersburg High School. Although he voted for the deal, he's worried it doesn't offer enough to help keep and retain teachers in the public school system. I can't go to my landlord and be like, oh, I don't have any real money for you. My insurance doesn't cost any more this year. I hope... I hope you'll take that as payment. The deal also covers 100% of an increase to health care premiums. But with rising rents, gas prices, and the cost of food, he's worried the deal will do little to help retain the teachers they have and attract new recruits, especially those like him who are young and trying to rent in the current market. We're living like every other paycheck to paycheck. This is going to lead to a lot of people thinking that they're just going to go to different school districts or leave the profession entirely. I would not be surprised if, like, if there's a pretty sizable exodus of teachers. But he says the union's really doing the best it can. Velarde, who helped negotiate the deal, agreed. I do believe, considering the low funding that public schools received, this was a pretty good deal and puts money in their pockets. Florida ranks 48th nationally in average teacher pay, and Velarde says it's a state problem. More than a dozen state laws and rules govern teachers' pay in Florida, which can tie the hands of local districts. Pinellas County Schools in a statement said that they're proud of the agreement they reached and believe it will help the district attract and retain highly qualified teachers. For WMNF, I'm McKenna Schuler. And up next on the Florida Roundup, former President Donald Trump's path to getting the GOP nomination again runs through the Republicans who've backed him in the past, but also through Florida's governor. What lies ahead? That's next on the Florida Roundup. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup and happy Black Friday. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, former President Donald Trump is the first person to officially declare his bid to get his old job back. But two years before a presidential election is an eternity in politics and a lot can happen between now and then. 
The path to Trump getting the GOP nomination runs through the Republicans who backed him in the past, and as WUSF's Lynn Hatter reports, the path also runs through a certain Florida governor who's been encouraged to pursue his own bid for the job. Republicans nationally have taken notice of the potential contest between Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, especially after the former president took a swipe at the popular governor during an early November campaign rally in Pennsylvania, where he threw shade at his political rivals. We're winning big, big, big in the Republican Party for the nomination like nobody's ever seen before. Let's see, there it is, Trump at 71. Rhonda Sanctimonious at 10%. Mike Pence at 7 Oh, Mike's doing better than I thought. Liz Cheney, there's no way she's at 4%. That rally was before the November 8th election, where Republicans did not win as big as they predicted. Surveys taken after the election show GOP voters may be starting to lean more toward DeSantis. A YouGov poll released on November 16th showed Republicans preferring Florida's governor to be their GOP presidential nominee in 2024 over their former one by a margin of 46 to 39 percent. The Conservative Club for Growth gave Politico a copy of its November 14th poll, showing the former president trailing the popular governor in states with early primaries. The prospect of a DeSantis presidential bid is tantalizing to Ryan Wiggins. She's a longtime Florida political consultant and insider who's now the chief of staff for the anti-Trump group, the Lincoln Project. It's going to be fun for, for people in my world to watch for the next two years because they're going to do a lot of our work for us. I mean, you're going to have Ron DeSantis taking out Trump and Trump taking out DeSantis and us watching and eating popcorn on the sidelines, you know. An opinion piece published recently in the Washington Post lays out a case for why Republicans and some Democrats should support a DeSantis presidential bid. It posits that DeSantis represents the best scenario for a, quote, return to normalcy. For Wiggins, that's laughable. She says Ron DeSantis is no moderate. For the country as a whole, it's a very dangerous thing because I think that Ron DeSantis and Casey are doing a very good job of trying to portray themselves as the new Camelot. Um, and, you know, the new JFK and Jackie O on the other side. And that's not who they are. They are not, they are not the old establishment. Um, they are not the, the, your, your parents' Republican Party. Um, they, they are very much MAGA. People just need to chill out a little bit on some of this stuff. I mean, seriously. For his part, DeSantis continues to brush aside talk about a presidential bid. We have this Georgia runoff coming, which is very important for Republicans to win that Georgia runoff. I mean, I know around the country, uh, Florida was kind of the, the biggest bright spot. It was not so bright in many other parts of the country. And most political pundits and Republican insiders have placed that blame at the feet of former President Donald Trump, which in turn has boosted DeSantis's profile even higher. It's smart of the governor to downplay the 2024 talks, says GOP strategist Christian Camera. Two years is a political eternity. And uh, let's be honest, the state is going to be facing some challenges next year. The state's property insurance market is a mess. And Hurricanes Ian and Nicole did a number on several critical communities. He's going to have to devote time and attention to that. And I think it would hurt him politically, not just hurt the state, but it would hurt him politically if you know, he's running around, running for president and raising money and traveling to other states while the state of Florida is having to deal with some of these issues that require his attention. Camera notes the groundswell of support for DeSantis to run is real and not just made up hype by the news media. Anything can happen in two years. So why should voters care about the GOP presidential primaries right now? Camera believes they shouldn't. The reason why people are so obsessed Two years out from, you know, the upcoming election is because of that, is that that is their lives. That is what they focus on and obsess over rather than, you know, focusing on family, focusing on, you know, their faith, focusing on their job or whatever the case may be. And, you know, that's like I said, that's more of, of, a, of a critique of, of where we are as a society. I think. For Ryan Wiggins, who's actively working against Trump and DeSantis, 
The conversation around the two men matters now because she sees it as an extension of a deeper and more complex issue, how to address the anger and cultural divisions that she says undergird the politics of both men. If you want to truly make this country great again, you have to be the answer. You have to practice kindness. You have to practice compassion. You have to practice empathy. According to the poll aggregation site 538.com, President Donald Trump still holds the overwhelming odds of securing the 2024 GOP presidential nod. And maybe it's worth taking DeSantis's advice to chill out and Camera and Wiggins's advice to focus on reconnecting with other things and other people in the interim. I'm Lan Hatter. Well, it's no secret temperatures are climbing all around the world. Miami-Dade's first official heat season ended in October. Now, it's a response to the fact that as climate change becomes more of an inescapable reality, the days are indeed getting hotter. As intense heat becomes more common around the world, the potential threat to our biodiversity also increases. Perhaps no creature symbolizes our relationship with the ocean more than the sea turtle. From the time their eggs are laid on hot sands to the time they swim out into polluted waters, sea turtles are under constant threat. Their plight tells a tale of how our march toward progress has left a trail of unintended consequences that threatens their very survival and ours. Conservationists believe the health of the sea turtle tells us the health of the ocean. The health of the ocean reflects the health of the planet. So what are these creatures trying to tell us now? Could they be sending us an urgent warning? And will we listen in time? As WUSF's Kathy Carter reports, one species at particular risk to climate change is found right on the beaches of Florida. Each morning during sea turtle nesting season, scientists and citizen volunteers with Moat Marine Laboratory comb Sarasota County shoreline. They're looking for turtle tracks for mothers coming ashore to lay their eggs or evidence that baby hatchlings have emerged. So we're just going to go um, and look for the nest that hatched. Our volunteers have flagged it. Um, they've already walked the zone and they've already identified which ones I now need to go and respond to. When she reaches the nest, which has already been marked with wooden stakes, marine biologist Alexis Ferreira crouches down and finds a medium-sized hole in the sand. So I can see the tracks coming out of this one. Hopefully they've made it to the ocean. The biggest threat to sea turtles right now is coastal development and beachfront lighting, which disorients baby turtles, causing them to wander inland. But scientists say a fast-developing risk to the species is global warming. That's because the sex of sea turtles is determined by the temperature in which their eggs incubate. Warmer temperatures will produce more females, and cooler temperatures will produce more males. The adage is hot chicks and cool dudes. That's Jake LaSala. He's with Moat Marine Sea Turtle Conservation and Research Program. And he says Florida's sandy beaches host one of the largest loggerhead nesting aggregations in the world. And research from some of his colleagues on the state's east coast say that for the past several years, the vast majority of hatchlings have been female. Sea turtles that incubate in sand that is 81.6 degrees Fahrenheit or lower will be male. Those 88.8 degrees Fahrenheit or higher will be female. And anything in between that range will produce a mix of offspring. As Florida summers become hotter, beach sand is also getting warmer. And LaSala says that can be problematic for many reasons. If there are too many females, then your population can start to decline because the males can't keep up with the number of females. If the temperature continues to increase further than currently projected, then you will start to see the death of hatchlings because eggs can't develop after a certain temperature. And LaSala says Florida isn't the only area where the sex of sea turtles is being altered. A 2018 study found that 99% of the green sea turtles that hatched on the warmer northern Great Barrier Reef nesting beaches in Australia were female. So this isn't a new thing. It's just we are now seeing it on a larger scale. It takes about 25 years for sea turtles to reach sexual maturity. So it could be decades before we see the ramifications of hotter temperatures on sea turtle populations. Though they're still considered a threatened species, their numbers have been rebounding. Back at the beach, biologist Ferreira takes several calls about stranded hatchlings, which will make their way to Moat Marine's Sea Turtle Rehabilitation Hospital before being released into the Gulf. Hey, 
Hi, um, my patrollers have a hatchling that was found by the Ritz, and so they are going to meet you at the pavilion to give it to you. But for the long-term implications for survival, researchers like Lasala are stepping up efforts to consider what climate change means to species whose sex is determined by incubation temperatures. One of the projects they're doing is looking at the temperature of beach sand in Sarasota County. They're placing gauges in loggerhead nests to see what the baseline temperatures are, similar to efforts underway on South Florida beaches. And then we're trying different modeling methods to look at sea surface temperature and air temperature and precipitation events to see which factors affect temperature the most. Lasala says these other factors do play a big role in the fluctuation of temperature on beach sand, which could keep more of the eggs from producing a majority of female hatchlings. But even if the Earth's temperature keeps rising, all hope may not be lost for the sea turtle. The marine reptiles have managed to outlive their contemporaries, the dinosaurs, and do seemingly have a survival instinct capable of a rapid evolutionary response. In 2018, for the first time in decades, eggs from a loggerhead sea turtle nest successfully hatched on a beach far north of Florida in Delaware. I'm Kathy Carter in Sarasota. And that's our show. The Florida Roundup is produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Twe are show producers. WLRN's Vice President of Radio and our Technical Director is Peter Mertz. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels and Isabella De Silva. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos. At AaronLebos.com, I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next Friday.